KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is the recent argument before the U.S. Supreme Court on Hollywood mogul Byron Allen's race discrimination suit against Comcast. Civil rights groups, they sounded the alarm. Civil Rights Act of 1866, we feel is hanging in jeopardy. One of Comcast's top guys speaks out for the very first time. The guy's suing us for $20 billion. The point of law that's the sticking point, and what Comcast says must happen to make this whole thing go away. The man who murdered her son got a plea deal, and she's fired up demanding change. They can change how they treat the next what a victim rights advocate wants Pennsylvania's top prosecutor to do in Philly. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the $20 billion lawsuit filed by Hollywood entertainer Byron Allen against Comcast Corporation. He claims Comcast refused to carry some of his channels because they are black-owned. All eyes were on the arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court this week because civil rights groups say if Comcast wins, it'll be harder for people of color to sue under the Civil Rights Act. Comcast claims the lawsuit is frivolous and the outcome won't hurt civil rights. Or will it? With me in the studio to discuss this Flash point is Minister Rodney Muhammad. He is president of the Philadelphia NAACP. We also have Stacey Hawkins, a constitutional law professor at Rutgers Law School. And finally, on the phone, we have David Cohen, senior executive vice president of Comcast Corporation. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. So Thanks, I want to so kick it off with you, Minister. The NAACP issued a statement this week. You held a press conference ringing their alarm on this case, lay out the position. I reiterated what our president CEO, Derek Johnson, was saying. Uh, the NAACP didn't really get involved in this until this was going to the Supreme Court. Mm. And so our focus, so that the public understands it and, and your listening audience understand it, our focus is the protection of a vital civil rights act and safeguard, and that is the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And that has that has been the focus. The arguments that were in the lower courts, the NAACP was not involved in that. You're the ringing the alarm, saying saying what? Well, we're ringing the alarm to just say that one of our oldest civil rights acts and laws we feel is hanging in jeopardy. This thing says that unless it's a hundred percent the sole reason for a company being proved to be discriminatory, which can be almost impossible to prove. Uh, in many cases, I've, we feel it can set up a barricade for black inclusion in the economic life of this country, yeah. especially in the climate that we're in right now. I want to mm-hmm. get a response from you, David. Go ahead. Sure, let me, Rodney, I, we, you and I have not had a chance to talk about this. Right. I, 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 I wrote you. To, right. I did write right. you, and I hope we can do that. Right. And I don't, so I don't want to feel like I'm catching you by surprise here, but uh, let me yeah. go back and sort of point out that. This is actually not the NAACP's first involvement in this case. Uh, in fact, right. To show, the, to show the absurdity of, of the case and the claim, Byron Allen originally sued 
That's correct. That's correct. Um, and Reverend Sharpton and the National Urban League accusing you of conspiring with Comcast in a racist conspiracy to deny him access to programming on our cable networks. That's and right. at the time, and I just, I just want to quote this for you, the NAACP said, this is not Comcast, it's not David Cohen, it's not Rodney Muhammad either, but the NAACP criticized the lawsuit as being baseless, frivolous, and utterly lacking in merit. So that was the NAACP's reaction to this lawsuit. Point two, the notion that this, and by the way, this is Byron Allen's case. It's not Comcast's case. We didn't want to be here. We think it's absurd to sue for a program carriage dispute using the civil rights laws. And that's what we're defending ourselves against. Remember, the guy's suing us for $20 billion. So this was his idea, his issue. His pursuit, not ours. Yeah. All we're doing is defending ourselves. But the notion that this case implicates some widespread risk or or overhaul to the nation's civil rights laws is just not true. The only person saying this is Byron Allen. And with all due respect, everyone who's mimicking those words needs to look at what is at stake in this case, which we had the Supreme Court arguments, and we now know that this is the case, yeah. which is this case involves a technical dispute over the standard of proof that needs to be shown in order to prevail under Section 1981. And we'll come and back we to you, David. Mm-hmm. We have advocated for a but-for standard of proof. That is the standard of proof. It applies we'll get under Title VII. Yeah. It applies in every civil rights statute in the country that has applied under Section 1981 for decades. And we'll come and back to you, David. Yeah, we'll come back to you and let you expound on that. And I want to get you, Professor Hawkins, jump in here and, and explain. Is This is, of course, David's advocating for uh, Comcast here. We heard what the what minister had to say. Comment on on the Civil Rights Act. Is this as big as civil rights groups are making it? Yes. Well, Cheria, I actually mentioned to Reverend Muhammad that I thought it was odd that having been originally a defendant in the right. action that the NAACP has actually now filed an amicus brief in favor of mm-hmm. Mr. Allen's case at the Supreme Court. And I believe the reason why, notwithstanding whatever the original factual disputes might have been between Mr. Allen and the NAACP, that this is a pretty major issue mm. of civil rights law that is going to be decided in this case. And that has um, compelled the NAACP to take a position in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and it is true, as uh, uh, Mr. Cohen said, that it's a very technical issue of law, that it's really not about the substantive claim of discrimination. It's about what the standard of proof is going to be for any plaintiff that files a claim under this particular um, civil rights statute. But that's a very important issue because what happened is that the trial court essentially bounced Mr. Allen's case out of court before he ever had a chance to present any evidence to have any discovery to in any way put forward his allegations against Comcast. And what the court said was that if Mr. Allen couldn't prove that race was the sole motivating reason for their failure to carry his network or the denial of the agreement to carry his network, then he could not win. So there was no 
point in letting him proceed. Mm-hmm. Mr. Allen and his lawyers now argue that that was the wrong standard of proof to hold him to so early in the case, that mm-hmm. instead all he was required to do was demonstrate that race somehow played some factor, right, some part in the decision to deny him um, carriage on their network. And mm-hmm. if he could prove that, then he was entitled to his day in court. Um, and so this case is really, as as Mr. Cohen said, Comcast takes the position that there is this much higher but for causation standard, which means race has to be the sole and only motivating reason for Comcast's failure to carry Mr. Allen's network. And Mr. Allen's claim, and that's supported now by the NAACP, that there should be a much lower burden of proof on civil rights plaintiffs, at least at the early stages of their cases. And, Professor, that, that's, a, that's an accurate summary, but the only thing it's missing in your summary is that the standard of proof that we are advocating is the standard of proof that has been universally applied in the, in the pleading of civil rights cases for at least 50 years in this country. We are not advocating for anything new. So whether it's Title VII, whether it's age discrimination, whether it's Section 1981, this but-for standard has been in place for decades. That's actually not not true. So Title VII, very explicitly, by statute, has a mixed motive burden of proof. Title VII was amended to add that mixed motive It was amended to add that mixed motive, but if a plaintiff proceeds under the mixed motive provision, he is not entitled to damages. And under the explicit amendment, so Mr. Allen is seeking $20 billion in damages, and Title VII, before the amendment, the standard of proof was was but for causation. So why would the court, if this is if this has been an issue for decades, why would the court take something up like this? And I also think a red flag that a lot of people, a lot of civil rights groups jumped on was the fact that the Department of Justice, the Trump administration Department of Justice actually sided with Comcast on this. And a lot of folks felt that there was an alignment to this. It was cause for alarm that they jumped in, but we tried to stay focused purely on uh is Section 1981, what it had provided, and what that burden of proof, as David Cohen is saying, because we were we were initially accused by Mr. Allen, along with Reverend Sharpton. I didn't appreciate some of the comments. They weren't accurate. Uh, in my judgment, they weren't accurate. And, you know, to Comcast's credit, I felt like what we had done in 2010, that Comcast was doing things to honor their their commitment toward diversity. Uh, I thought I, I was encouraged with all the figures I've been investigating thus far, mm-hmm. uh, as Mr. Allen claimed 100% black owned cable companies, which it's not like we have a plethora of those, but uh, uh, there are a number of them already carried by Comcast and black, the black news channel starts uh, tomorrow, I believe. And Comcast. So is why going to get involved in NAACP? Why get well, involved in this? We, if, we've if been, you're, We've kind been avalanche. We've been avalanche with. Well, we're not stepping back. We we've been. We have an avalanche of calls in that the community wants to know why aren't we boycotting Comcast? Why aren't we doing this? We made a statement to let them know where our focus is, and I, I, I I'm in close touch with our national office. And our focus was not Byron Allen's case. We did not. We did not see that that case as having all the merit in the beginning, um, and. 
Uh, we didn't get involved in, in, the, in the lower courts. I don't know the point that we got dropped, but originally we were defendants along with the National Action Several Network. Several years ago, a few years yeah. ago, yeah. But we are concerned about being stripped of a vital uh, civil rights safeguard. In the climate we're in right now, I could see companies just lining up. Uh, yeah. and I can see a barricade of what we call black inclusion in the economic life of this country. And so that we aired that concern, but that's been our focus, the nature of this case and the way it's shaped going to the Supreme Court. And I got to ask you, David, I mean, this could I mean, is this having major backlash against Comcast? Because there has been protests on this issue. There's a lot of discussion uh, about this, especially among civil rights groups. Does Comcast kind of lose face regardless of the outcome of this case in some ways? First of all, there haven't been that many protests. There haven't been that many people against this. There's I think, been an outsized attention to limited media outlets about what's going on. A hundred percent of that is being provoked by Byron Allen, who's just trying to put $20 billion in his own pocket. And I think people are smart enough to understand what's going on here. I think when they hear Comcast's diversity record, and, you know, Minister, thank you for that. I mean, we, we carry over a hundred networks that are targeted to a diverse audience, and since we acquired NBC Universal, we've launched eight minority-owned networks, including four African-American-owned cable channels. I think people look at our record on diversity and they recognize we're not trying to dismantle the civil rights laws. And, you know, with all due respect, the rhetoric around the dismantling of Section 1981 is just not part of our plan. This is not it's a radio show. I'm not going to do this. But I could cite you case after case after case in the country where section where the but for causation standard has been applied to section 1981 cases it is the rule of the land and i think the supreme court took this case because but for causation is the rule of the land everywhere but in the ninth circuit and one of the reasons why the supreme court takes cases is to harmonize yeah. law when there's a conflict between the circuits I think that's why the Supreme Court took this case. And I, and I see head shaking from the professor here. Go ahead and comment. Uh, Mr. Cohen, I, I, I want to circle back to the comment that but for causation is the prevailing standard under all civil rights statutes. That's just false. Uh, again, under Title VII disparate treatment claims, there is by statute a mixed motive burden of proof that is available to plaintiffs. And similarly, the courts not seeking the not courts. Professor, not I, I let you speak, damages. Mr. Cohen. I, I let I let you speak, Mr. Cohen. But we're talking about liability. The, the case right now is about whether or not he can pursue liability against Comcast on the basis of a mixed motive a 20 billion dollar damage but claim. but that's but I'm not commenting on the value of his case or even the merits of his case this case before the supreme court and I think that this is the this is the point at which the NAACP gets back involved notwithstanding its strong past alliance with Comcast in working on diversity efforts in the memorandum of understanding because Comcast is in fact assailing a long standing civil rights statute and that is the reason why Organizations like the NAACP and other organizations, National Lawyers Committee, have come out strongly in support of Mr. Allen's claim, not because they believe in his merits, right, of his individual case, but because they believe that the way in which this case has been defended by Comcast, that is to shift the burden of proof for plaintiffs writ large in civil rights actions, is deeply problematic. And and I'll let you respond to that, David. I'm just going to say this now. Let her finish. 
basically everything you just said is untrue. There are five courts of, circuit courts of appeals that have considered this question, and they have unanimously decided that but-for causation is the standard of proof under Section 1981, and the only dissenting view is this case in the Ninth Circuit. And, and this is probably why this case, I mean, because the U.S. Supreme yeah. Court only takes cases when there is disagreement and there is a splinter among the among the circuits. And so that is why this is a question before our high court. And, and we've heard the justices ask questions during the during the oral arguments about this issue. But of, I, of, but I think that's right why when the, when the NAACP led the way with 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 um, with briefs, I mean, so many. Uh, other civil rights organizations were quick to jump on uh, with this because it's it it, it 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 needs to be made clear when you have when you have a burden of proof of one hundred percent that you have to prove that that's the sole mm-hmm. reason. I'm and we're talking saying, about at the complaint stage here. We're not yeah, talking about at, at the complaint once, stage. This is this is the the lowest level of of burden, and we're talking about just getting it in the court. And and that's that's the stage. This is a motion to dismiss that's being disputed here. Go right ahead. Yeah. So I, I, you know the way we're understanding it out here. I'm just a lay person. I'm not an attorney, but uh, and they, they they obviously the professor and, and David far more familiar with with all of the mechanism in our legal department um, for the NAACP is. But I'm just saying the way it's registering out here is like a person can deny me. Yeah. And 99 percent of that denial could be because I'm black and one percent could be for any other reason. What zip code I live in or something like that. I know this sounds bizarre and crazy, but it sounds like uh, because of that one percent. Yeah. That that can't be proven in court that uh, it it fits with the other 99 percent. Then I lose my claim. Uh, yeah. and, uh, of, and, of and, discrimination and, in that, and that's kind of frightening. And that's why we held the press conference just to t- let the public know we are concerned also. And David, know, and, and I get it. And, and David, I get what you're saying about mm. you know this has been the prevailing law, and and you know you guys probably have a very super smart lawyer team. But I, I have to say, there, the, all these civil rights groups can't just be confused about. The way this is. And we have a professor. I'm a lawyer, too. It it seems to me that there has to be a valid concern here for the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case in the first place. And that, well, I mean, if then this is a, a this is a private matter between Comcast and, and Byron Allen and his companies. Why not just settle this and leave everybody else out of it? Because it's like folks don't want to be a part of this. Well, the real the real solution here is that is that Byron Allen should just withdraw his case. I mean, under the, under the state of the law as it is, the rule is but for causation. And I, I, I'm going to just say that. That is what the rule of well, law well, is. Now Byron, and, have to, and yeah. the Supreme Court will decide whether I'm right about that or not. But, and so uh, Byron Allen can withdraw his case, and then you don't have to worry if there's any concern by the civil rights community that some mischief is going to be done in this space. Mm-hmm. If Byron Allen withdraws his case, it's over. Well, what he's, well, David, what he's touting in the public, I've, I've watched a couple of interviews, is that he's saying that um, there could have been a possibility of him dropping the case sometime earlier in this whole process, but he's saying Comcast won't say whether they'll meet with him or not. He's saying they want me to drop the them? case, but they're not telling yeah. me whether they're going to meet with me or not. He said, I want the meeting set and 
and some terms of settlement set before I drop the case, not finding out if I'm going to meet and well, Rodney, what's going to happen after. I don't, I don't know. He just said that on the show. Well, Byron and, hasn't said very many <clears throat> truthful things throughout okay. the course of the investigation. Um, I'm certainly not going to try and negotiate something here. Obviously, yeah. there were negotiations between Byron Allen and Comcast. By the way, he's, the networks he wants to carry, Rodney, I just have to tell you, I mean, there's no diversity in the networks. He's got a pets network and a recipe network. It has nothing to do with African Americans or diversity. And it's, you know, we just made a judgment that this was not programming that our customers wanted to pay for. And that and may very well be true, but we have a saying, you might be familiar with it, David, that bad facts make bad law. And Byron well, Allen and Comcast are fighting over a case that might be rife with bad facts, but right now it's about to make really bad law. I, I don't do, agree it's going to make bad law, but if it is, then Byron Allen should withdraw the case. Within his I, I do beg to differ that the fact that several circuits have weighed in on this issue does not make that the prevailing rule of law in this country. It makes it the rule of law in those circuits. Well, and if it were the rule of law, law in the country, that, then the Supreme Court would so, not have taken the case. No, it's the prevailing law everywhere it's been decided except in the Ninth Circuit. But, David, will this will, – will Comcast, regardless of the outcome, will Comcast end up losing face among – Civil rights groups among communities of color, because this is two companies, two entities that are just sort of butting heads. And and in essence, um, the outcome has a major impact within communities that have nothing to do with this. I think the answer to that is that we're going to stand on our substantial investments and commitments to minority communities and diverse communities, to our outstanding track record in a diversity inclusion and equity space to the work that we do with local NAACPs like the Philadelphia NAACP to advance the cause of minorities, um, to, the, to the minority employees who we hire, um, to the minority contractors who we do business with, to the minority programming that we carry, um, and to the minority investments that we make in our community. And I think our company is going to continue to make those investments, make those commitments, and stand strong on the fact that people know our commitment to diversity and to minority communities. Yeah, and to be fair, I was at an event yesterday where Comcast did win the Diversity and Inclusion Award, and it's just, it seems rather strange uh, to have, the, have that argument at, before the U.S. Supreme Court on the same day they get this award. And so, Professor, I do want to bring you back in here. Comcast is a big company, lots of control over what people have access to. If what civil rights groups are saying, what other avenues would be available if there were better facts, for example, in court to take on such a claim as this? It's important not to unfairly target companies who are doing their level best to try to live mm -hmm. their commitment to diversity. Um, I'm, I'm not going to comment. I don't have any basis for commenting on whether or not Comcast is such a company, but I do think that it's important for us not to unfairly target those companies mm -hmm. because obviously mistakes are always made. And if companies are willing to take responsibility and demonstrate that they want to do right by um, their stakeholders and in particular diverse constituencies, then I think that that's important to recognize. At the same time, I do think it's important not to simply give a company a pass because of a professed commitment to diversity. Um, I think that we do still have to hold companies accountable, not just for what they say, but for what they do.
Mm-hmm. Um, and again, without commenting on the facts of this case, because I don't know much about it, no one does because Mr. Allen didn't get past the courthouse door yeah. um, in pursuing these claims. Um, I, I, I do want to say that um, it, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that while Comcast is saying that they have no intention of undermining the Civil Rights Act and undermining civil rights claims, that will be the effect of a decision adopting the position that they're advocating in this case. Yeah. I want to reiterate, it is not currently the prevailing law that the but-for causation standard is applicable to Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, nor is it applicable to other important civil rights statutes, but it could become the prevailing standard. And that would be deeply problematic because it's a very high standard to meet, as uh, Reverend Muhammad said. And and so the NAACP has a very uh, unique space here before I bring David back in because you guys had strong relationships with Comcast. That's right. You also are now defending uh, uh, Byron Allen, even though he had thrown stones at you too. Why not not broker some kind of of truce here? Why not? Yeah, but we're, we're focused on the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Mm -hmm. We're Mm -hmm. clearly not uh, involved in the lower uh, court case argument in that. Now that this is going uh, to the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. it's uh, at the Supreme Court, what it it has mushroomed into, right, that is is our focus. And uh, when when we had our press conference and my letters to Comcast and everything, we made it clear where our focus is. Uh, I've been in long talks with our president, CEO, uh, Derek Johnson, uh, we are not involved in the case of Byron Allen versus Comcast in that sense of the word where we're taking one side or the other. We're, we're, we just, we're concerned with this ruling and what its impact could be uh, if it goes in the way the professor is talking about. I can say, as a president, I get many people in the office who take a personal case and want me to turn it into a civil rights issue. Uh, I understand that, and I understand what what does come out to be a civil rights issue, certain people's personal cases that do not qualify for that. This may have been like that. I was. We weren't involved. We were. We were defendants in it. I saw all of that. But now so that it's risen that. to this level, and now that, that it's risen to this level, issue. and the argument, as they both are saying, the burden of proof and how that burden of where that burden lies, yeah. and to me, the burden is going to lie with the plaintiff. And if I've got to prove that 100% of the reason for my denial for being involved in a contract, being involved in economic inclusion, which is the overarching argument yeah. here, uh, that, it, that it has to be because of my color, my ethnicity, yeah. et cetera, uh, I think that's a, that's a dangerous precedent yeah. to set mm-hmm. in the country. And we're, yeah. and we're about to wrap this up, but I do want to squeeze in one more question for David. I mean, mm-hmm. the, now you have a congressman calling to break up Comcast. I mean, this is another piece of the backlash uh, to this. Any, any quick response to that before we do the final question? We've responded to Congressman Rush in writing. Um, uh, you know, obviously, we don't agree with his call, and the premise of his letter was that we hadn't honored our commitments under the Memoranda of Understanding. We've honored, we've honored and over-honored all of our commitments in those Memoranda of Understanding. And I have to say, I mean, I respect the opinions that are being expressed, um, and I appreciate. I mean, I mean. You know, Minister Minister Rodney has made the point that the NAACP's advocacy, at least the Philadelphia 
NAACP's advocacy has been limited to Section 1981. It's not been personalized to Comcast at all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I respect the professor's opinion. I think she's wrong on what the legal standard is, but I respect her opinion. That's what we have courts for, to be able to resolve them. And, and there's, a, there's an old expression that everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Congressman Rush, in his letter calling for our breakup, has made up facts. And I, I don't want to put Minister Rodney on the spot, but he would be a first-party witness to, the, to our honoring of the commitments we made under the Memoranda of Understanding, including the launching of eight new minority networks. And I don't think Congressman Rush's call to break up our company is going to go anywhere. Yeah. Okay, because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. Now, Comcast and the black community, communities of color, we kind of need each other and need to work together. So regardless of how this case turns out, how do both sides repair and rebuild the trust to move the ball of diversity and inclusion forward? How do well, we do that? Well, we'll have to talk, but, you know, uh, I don't know about a, as big of a groundswell. I see people trying to get a groundswell. People have been calling me and wanting town meetings and everything. Uh, uh, the, our national officials held a town meeting. I think people are just uh, buying into some things that may be false, some people have half information. You know, sometimes half truth is worse than a lie. And that's what, I, that's what I feel a lot of people are responding to what they think this is. But we haven't really had a public discussion to inform people what it really is. And then they can make a decision, you know, one way or the other. From the perspective of Comcast, um, we're not going to, we're going to do everything in our power to prevent any flare-up over this with civil rights organizations, local community organizations, from interfering with our substantial ongoing commitments to diversity, inclusion, and equity in every community where we do business. I think most of the people who have advocated for this, including the people on this call, are advocating for a position under the law, um, and they're advocating for a legal position, most of the most of the advocates here are not advocating against Comcast. Mm. They're not criticizing Comcast's diversity record and our commitment to diversity, inclusion, and equity. And we're going to continue to to do that work um, and continue, just by way of example, to work with Minister Rodney, the Philadelphia NAACP, on the multiple projects that we work on together to improve the lives of African Americans in Philadelphia and to make sure that the Philadelphia NAACP is a vital voice for advocacy and for improving the quality of life in Philadelphia. We have to judge Comcast by their actions and not by their words. I think that it's important for Comcast to take note that they are opposed to the entire civil rights community on this issue. And they say that they have no intention of undermining the enforcement of civil rights law, but they must understand that their actions say otherwise. And if, in fact, they think that they have such a strong case on the merits against Mr. Allen, why not simply just let him have his day in court and fight it on the merits rather than winning on a technicality that is ultimately going to have implications far beyond this case that are clearly deleterious to civil rights enforcement in this country if that's not what they want? All right. Well, I want to say thank you to Minister Rodney Muhammad. Thank you to David Cohen. And thank you to Stacey Hawkins. For coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. Thanks very much, Sherry.
Next up, the man who murdered her son got a plea deal and she's mad. It was a roller coaster ride that's unacceptable. Now she's asking Pennsylvania's top prosecutor to step in. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we changed some things up. Let me know how you like the new sound to our podcast. Also, we need your help. Please, please, please subscribe. You can use iTunes, and if you have an Android, you can use the Radio.com app and search Flashpoint KYW. We also have a new Twitter account. Yay! It's called Flashpoint Show. You can follow us. We'll follow you back. And remember to leave a review for the podcast. We love, love, love feedback. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is Lisa Espinosa. She's a victim rights advocate who made headlines after the man who killed her son was sentenced to just 14 to 28 years behind bars. She's also the second victim this week to ask the Pennsylvania Attorney General to take a look at how Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner has handled a case. Lisa, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm in a place where I am bothered and frustrated with the criminal justice system of Pennsylvania. And I need to do this. The the reason why I filed a formal complaint against the criminal leniency Philadelphia District Attorney's Office is because it is unacceptable that they're doing these light bundle deals in addition to the mishandling of my son, Raymond Pantoja's case. This week, you sent a letter to Pennsylvania Attorney General uh, Josh Shapiro. Why did you reach out to the state AG? I reached out to Attorney General Josh Shapiro because there is a need for victims to to be heard. There was criminal leniency and the whole way that they handled, the district attorney handled Raymond's case, Raymond Pantoja, Commonwealth versus Giovanni Perales' case was just, it was absurd from the beginning. It was a roller coaster ride that's unacceptable. They lost key video evidence that demonstrated that Perales, who did plead guilty after three years, walked across from a crowd and shot Raymond, who was unarmed, um, was helpless, and he was trying to stand up from the ground, and he shot him. No words were exchanged. Nothing happened. No fists, no involvement. Even in sentencing, the ADA actually presented the case as that Perales brought a gun to a fight. Perales and my son never had a fight. Video, this video would have demonstrated to the judge, and the judge didn't get to see this video because it was not available. Um, there was five ADAs assigned to, to this case. When I sat with the fifth ADA, she said when the previous ADA who had the case mm-hmm. left, apparently somehow they erased his system, his computer system, and the videos were in a folder on his computer. So you saw a video that would have probably meant, uh, in your mind, a stiffer sentence and a tougher charges for uh, Giovanni Perales. And well, it, sh- it, it would have allowed the judge because Perales had such a long criminal uh, background that the judge had to be the one who, de- who decided how many years he was going to get. The DA's office should have been going for 20 to 40, which is the actual amount for third degree murder in Pennsylvania. Because he pleaded guilty, they lowered it to 15 to 30. I don't understand the justification for the 15 to 30 because Perales, one, he murdered my son and pleaded guilty to this. Two, he was a fugitive for six months, and I worked um, tirelessly with the detectives to find the um, the murderer. 
Three, when he was caught, he had two high-capacity AK-47 weapons. He had one semi-automatic, and also he had drugs, $19,000 in drug money, and he was there was two children in the home. Yeah. So for all of this, they bundled this big, and they had two separate cases in the beginning. All of a sudden, he pleaded guilty. They bundled both all the deals for 15 to 30. If the judge would have seen this video, he might have gotten the fullest amount of what they were offering, the DA was recommending. You felt like the 20 to 40 was low. 20 to 40 is just from third degree murder. He was also a supplier to our community where he was selling straw purchase guns and ammunition. You have asked the state attorney general to to intervene. What have you asked for him to do? To review and investigate the case. I'm not looking for an outcome of changing the charges. I know that's not going to happen. The case, you know, what he got is what he got. My goal now is for them to investigate this case to see that there was there was malice. There was there was they did not do the responsible thing with this case. They didn't um, handle it accordingly with the high professionalism that the DA's office should be considering every case. I feel that they also need to introduce and find that piece of video evidence that is missing so they can put it for 11 years from now when Giovanni Perales comes up for parole so the parole board can see this video and see that it was done with malintention and malice. And to also hold Larry accountable, Larry Krasner accountable, City of Philadelphia, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is supposed to uh, hold accountable the individuals that break the law. He is not holding these individuals accountable. And the message that he's sending out to the community is you can get away with murder. Before sending this letter, you took a number of actions, correct? I held a three-day protest for unsolved cases in front of the police headquarters. I held this because I know what it is to have an unsolved case for six months. And I can't even begin to imagine what these families are going through. You have shootings. We have emergency stakeholder meetings. We have emergency meetings in Philadelphia, but nothing comes out of it. So my my question is, how much is it going to take? You know, the system is broken. It's broken. And we can't just keep saying, let's pray about it. Prayer is good, but it's not it's not saving our our, it's not saving our community. Yeah. And the message of the D.A., the DA's office, and I'm all for criminal reform, but murder is murder. My goal is that the attorney general review this case, review all the mistakes that were made. It's not going to change the outcome of the charges for Giovanni Pilates. However, my goal is that they learn from this mistake. They take and put new procedures to follow, or if the procedures are they there already and exist, follow them according to the T. And, you know, right now there's so many cases. I'm one of the lucky ones that got a higher sentence. So I should feel lucky. I can't change. It's irre- I can't change what's already been done. My son was murdered. That's irreversible. The time that they gave, the sentencing that they gave to Perales is irreversible. They can't change that now because the court already gave him that. However, they can change the way they work with future victims. They can change how they treat the next Raymond Pantoja. A lot of people hear this and they say, you know, anytime a child is murdered, and I don't mean this to sound, you know, insensitive, it's a horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible tragedy, Lisa. No amount of time would have been 
just in the fa- in the eyes of, of a family who lost someone who they love. So could they have ever done anything that was enough to really bring justice? Does prison time ever really bring justice? Honesty and you're true. There's nothing that they could have given him that would. But he broke the law. And under that law broken for the state of Pennsylvania, he should have been held accountable to the time that goes with that law that was broken. Yeah. It's, at this point, it's not even about what I feel is justice. This point, it's about what law he broke and the time he should have been serving for the law that he broke. Now, there's very mm-hmm. likely, Lisa, I'm sure under the Victim Rights Act, you will be notified of yes. parole hearings, any changes in the status to this case. You will provide whatever victim uh, impact uh, statement that needs to be provided. It's likely that given all these factors, he'll spend the full amount of time behind bars, 28 years possibly. Um, would that be I, enough? I want to guarantee that he's going to be there the time that he was given. So I feel that in 11 years, he should not be eligible for parole. My granddaughter will be 21 in 11 years. This trauma that he caused my granddaughter will affect her. Yeah. No matter how much therapy we give her, it's already affected her. And so now at this point, as we wrap this up, Lisa, I mean, you have this letter. Have you received any responses from anyone in response to this letter? I have gotten a response from Victim Services in Harrisburg from Jennifer Storm, who was kind enough to say that I hear you. I support you. She can't do anything with this letter. Yeah. um, But she is going to file it in so it could be when Marcy's Law comes about, I'll be one of the persons yeah. that they will contact. Your final word, what do you want people to know uh, about you taking this this step to get intervention and to get justice from your perspective for more uh, victims? Um, victims need to speak up. Take that grief, turn it into energy, and not just sit on the sidelines and talk about it. You need to stand up because no one's going to represent your loved one like you. No yeah. one's going to fight for your loved ones like you. You have advocacy groups out here that do fight, but no one's going to fight harder for your loved one than you. Write a letter. Yeah. Show your face. Show up for stakeholder meetings. Show up. But I mean, it gets hard. It gets hard yeah. when you have a door slamming in your face at all times. So we don't come together. There's powers in numbers and we have to unite. Thank you so much, Lisa Espinosa, Thank for so coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you very much. Next up, he's a future teacher that mentors youth. The number one step was um, having the desire to make a change and also believing that you could do so. An effort by a Temple student to be what he needed as a kid. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And One Temple student has created a nonprofit that allows his classmates to mentor high school students in the Philadelphia School District. The organization's vision is to support students with education, tutoring, workshops, and motivational events. Here to tell us more about Don Cares of Philadelphia Incorporated is founder and executive director Donovan Forrest. Welcome to Flashpoint. Oh, thank you for having me. So first of all, what problem did you see 
that prompted you to create Don Cares? So I'm a Philadelphia native, a product of the Philadelphia school system, and also a pre-service teacher at Temple University. For a few hours a week, I'm student teaching at Frankfurt High School. I've been doing a lot of work, even previously to Don Cares, um, in the field of mentorship. And I understand that the problem was there was a lack of representation in education as a whole. And also, when I got to Temple, a lack of representation in mentorship. And there was a need for positive and consistent mentors, uh, primarily of color. So I decided to start an organization that would uh, allow high school students in North Philadelphia, a community that is uh, under or disenfranchised and also um, very promising when it comes to our youth, and allowing them to see not only uh, a college student of color who's doing positive things, but someone who's majoring in uh, engineering, uh, uh, STEM, some type of uh, you know, biosciences or even education, and um, helping them b- develop a relationship with an older mentor. I guess allowing them to see that, hey, this is someone that may come from a similar background as you, but can also go to college, do well in college, and also be a few years away from a promising career um, in their field. So, Did you have that when you were in school in Philly? Uh, so I didn't really have uh, the, that mm-hmm. ideal college student of color mentor, someone that was studying with me, but I did have plenty of mentors um, who showed me w- what was possible and also supported me and advocated for me when I needed it. And so... You went to, what, your classmates, your friends, and was like, look, y'all going to mentor some kids. <laughs> and how did that, what was the reaction to the, to the folks who were your peers? And what was the, what was the you know, um, as far as the school district, what was their reaction to you bringing your friends in? So I think that the, the, the number one step was um, having the desire to make a change and yeah. also believing that you could do so. Um, you know, I come from a really uh, dynamic background as it relates to growing up in Philadelphia as an African-American male, being at risk with having behavior issues, running with police officers constantly as a high school student. I went to eight schools in nine different years, so I, like, pretty much saw it all. Um, but also I had a lot of mentors. I had a supportive mom and aunt and grandparents who showed me that, you know, they loved me and showed me that I was supported. When I got to Temple, I got to Temple in fall 2015 um, from Millersville University. So I was studying at a different school, and I said, hey, I want to make a difference in the community where I am. It wasn't concrete, the idea. You know, it was really like all over the place, but I just knew I wanted to make a difference. So I began talking to people um, and through just communicating, going to different programs at Temple, people that communicate with, they said that they supported me. Um, So one of our first committee members was actually a high school teacher at the youth school um, in North Philadelphia. And he said, hey, you can bring your program to to the youth school. And at that point, it was it was time to build up the organization, you know, definitely make a uh, create a more structured foundation apply for 501c3 ultimately, and apply for grants and funding. But it was ultimately just about networking, communicating that um, passion, and ultimately they understood the need, so we just got together and created this. So uh, how many mentors do you have? How many kids have you impacted, and what does it feel like? We have about over 40 individuals in our organization currently, including mentees, mentors, uh, administrative staff members, and board directors. So, I mean, we have like a staff of over 40 people, um, over the past, uh, I guess, two or three school years, we've helped over 100 students create resumes um, in North Philadelphia. We've been at Kensington High School, Samuel Fells, and the U School. We just recently reached our goal of over $1,000 of giving out grocery store gift cards to families and children and youth in need at our partnership school. So we fight food insecurity. We do the mentoring thing, help students with resumes. Um, last year, we also had a partnership with AmeriCorps, where like, individuals who work for our organization can earn a stipend at the end of their service hours at the end of the year. We provided over 40 one-on-one mentors to students at the youth school um, over the past three school years. So, you know, doing that, um, understanding the relationships that these students are building with their uh, high school age contemporaries is really inspiring. It's motivating. Um, and it's also way bigger than who I am. Um, I was talking to a mentor today, and, you know, I told him how much I valued him as a mentor because 
even though I'm the executive director, I'm a mentor as well, but I'm just spearheading this. I mean, there are individuals every day doing the same passionate work that I, I commit myself to. So without them, uh, Don Cares is nothing. So I remind them, I'm not Don Cares. I may have been a visionary for it, but you guys and uh, ladies are doing the work for this organization and this vision. So wow, it's and so, amazing. So what's your vision moving forward? I mean, you guys are, I mean, obviously in a short period of time have been able to attract mentors and attract kids. Mm-hmm. So what's what's it going to look like years from now? Although we are a mentor organization right now, I believe to believe in dreams that will scare you. You know, a lot of people inspire me, but also encourage me to, hey, maybe branch out or try to develop more partnerships with schools in the city of Philadelphia. Although that's nice, I believe in concentrating all of your energy into like one small like radius of a community. So we're focused on Nara Square, Lower North Philly right now. I want to continue that work in Nara Square and ultimately apply for a charter from the Pennsylvania Department of Education and start a charter school with the basis of cultural competent teachers so that we understand the students that we're working with and not neglecting their personal needs and who they are and also encouraging a more business, administrative, um, more entrepreneurship curriculum. So allowing students who start maybe in seventh grade to 12th grade to leave with the business plan, but also a business or like an LLC or a nonprofit so that they can learn to be sustainable and also create social change. So how can people support you? Making a donation to our nonprofit organization. Uh, oftentimes when I pitch donations, even a donation as small as $20 can help five students create resumes. My philosophy is if you donate $20 bill, you can get four students milkshakes at the end of the day and say, hey, sit down with me for a half hour. We can create a resume and who doesn't like milkshakes? So if you do that for five students, $20 can help five students get resumes. They can leave better equipped applying for jobs. Check out DonCarisFilla.org. Anything coming up? Yeah, so we have quite a few events coming up. Man Up Discussion for Young Men, we have an event where we are, I guess, fellowshipping with our high school students to do the college applications process, help them edit uh, essays and things like that. And then we also have a Kwanzaa event going on on December 2nd where we introduce students to the, the cultural aspect of Kwanzaa. We'll have good food and music and readings and things like that at the youth school on December 2nd. So Wonderful. So check them out, doncarespilla.org. Thank you so much to Donovan Forrest, creator of Don Cares of Philadelphia. Thank you for being on Flashpoint. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know, and we'll walk you through the flames. To quote an old Greek proverb, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they'll never sit in. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.